Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Gann, and I'm your moderator for today's webinar, No-Fail Process for Recruiting Better Distributors and Channel Partners. We have quite a large crowd in attendance today from around the globe, and I thank you all for being here. Today's webinar is one of a regular series from Globalocity to help companies improve and sustain their indirect channel sales. Globalocity is one of the premier sales channel consultancies in the country. Through their global team of consultants, they are a one-stop shop for your complete B2B worldwide indirect sales channel and distribution needs. Before starting our webinar, let me take a moment to bring your attention to one item on the control panel on your screen. When you logged in and connected, a little control panel should have popped up on the right side of your computer screen. Towards the bottom of the control panel is where you can send in a question. As we'll be having the Q&A session after the presentation, please feel free to send in your questions along the way, and as best as possible, we'll try to get to all of them. If you're having a problem hearing the presentation or other technical issue, please send me a note through the question box and I'll try to assist you. All registrants will be receiving a copy of today's presentation materials, as well as a link to the webinar recording. During the presentation, we'll reference several templates and tools. If you're interested in receiving a copy of any of these items, please send your request to our presenters, whose contact details will be on the last slide, as well as in the follow-up emails to you. Now, let me take a moment to briefly introduce today's presenters, Mr. Mike Hunter and Ms. Doris Nagel. Mike Hunter is Globalocity's Chief Strategist. He is an internationally recognized business development expert with nearly 40 years experience. Throughout this period, Mike has helped more than 300 corporations to develop and implement the structure and processes for sales, marketing, channels to market, product management, and corporate alliance programs. Mike has taught product management and channel management skills to more than 60,000 students. Doris Nagel is CEO of Globalocity. She focuses on international expansion, channel management strategy and implementation, business processes, and risk management and compliance. Doris has more than 25 years experience and is a frequent speaker, blogger, podcast host, former DePaul Law School adjunct professor, and a regular columnist for Global Trade Magazine. Mike, as we're going to start with you, please take it away. Well, thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Welcome, everyone. I hope you're comfortably ensconced in your office uh, with your favorite libation. Or for you guys that are uh, working from uh, home, I hope you all find your favorite fuzzy uh, uh, slippers. Uh, we have a lot to cover, as Steve indicated. Uh, so we're going to jump right into uh, the, uh, the, the process. What we're going to deliver is an end-to-end -end roadmap of how the Globalocity team actually executes uh, recruitment programs for our clients. Uh, all of these elements have been used uh, multiple times and are time-tested and true, and we hope you get value out of the uh, presentation. So let's get into it. All right. Let's get to the next slide there if we can. Well, I'm working on that, Mike. Sorry about okay. this. I'm not sure what the uh, the issue is here, but 
technical problems. Just go ahead. I'm sure it'll catch up with you. <laughs> okay. No problem. Look, we, we impress upon our clients that uh, getting into these projects uh, um, requires a certain amount of planning. Uh, there is a uh, significant uh, uh, ROI to, uh, to doing a good uh, uh, recruitment project. Uh, obviously, what we are attempting to do is avoid partners that aren't going to be productive for us. And we're, you know, we're putting in a lot of time and a lot of resources in doing these things. And getting the wrong kinds of partner can produce all kinds of down-the-line down uh, aggravation, um, even brand damage and you know, lost opportunities in the marketplace. So the effort is to make sure uh, that the partners we get right, stick with us and turn over and are productive and uh, ensure our long-term sales growth. Now, the model we're going to use is uh, uh, a 10-point environment. All right? There's nothing special about the 10 points other than that's the way that it turned out. Uh, each element will have some kind of support for you uh, for after the webinar. Uh, and if you can take a look around the wheel for just for a second, you'll see the uh, uh, flow of the uh, workshop. Okay? So let's get uh, busy, all right? Assess skills and expectations. One of the first things that we do with our clients is try to get a look at what kind of resources they have and what kind of skills they have. So channel management skill sets are, are there either by training or experience, right? And we try to figure out if there are any gaps in that process that need to be filled before uh, we actually put a program into place. Uh, both Doris and I are big on data. Um, we'd like to take a look at what the client's uh, data capabilities are, first in marketing. Uh, that's an understanding of market sizing and the uh, segments of the marketplace, uh, a market's uh, compound annual growth rate or decline, uh, other data that's going to support us during the recruitment process. We're also assessing the uh, uh, willingness to invest, you know, not only in, in the time, but there also may be assets that need to be put in place, such as software programs, support programs, partner portals, other kinds of investments that need to be made. Then we're looking to build a solid sales strategy. And the core of that is really looking at a very highly defined role between direct sales uh, and the indirect sales uh, uh, partners, uh, making sure that we're minimizing conflict uh, and the roles of both parties are uh, precise and clear. And finally, all right, different companies have different uh, attitudes about partnering. Uh, we, we like uh, to impress with our, our clients that the partnering mindset should be one of a true partnership and not one of uh, the partner being the customer. All right. So once we have these things in place and we've assessed that, the next step in our process is really to build a really substantial value proposition. Now, it's a partner value proposition, not a product value proposition. And it's going to answer a few questions for the partner partners about why they should pick you. Now, I was privileged uh, some years ago to work with uh, Kellogg uh, graduate school, uh, professor there, Mobir Sani. Uh, matter of fact, the model I'm going to show you is his. Uh, there are uh, videos that he has online. If you want to go back and research that, we can send you a link on that. But he defines the value proposition as the potential benefits, all right, first element, that an offering to a target partner that will outweigh the total partner sacrifice. I know we don't often think of the partner making a sacrifice, but obviously, they do, whether it's investing in inventory, 
uh, or whether it's putting on new processes, whatever it is, uh, it's, it's a, quite a lot of work to onboard a new supplier while being differentiated right, from available alternatives. Uh, the alternative might be a competitor to yours or might be a totally different uh, product altogether. Right, and supported by reasons to believe. The support is obviously proof uh, that your program works well. Now, the little visual that Sony uses is an interesting uh, little model. It kind of sets it up so it's easy to understand. Uh, and really, it's sort of a teeter-totter. Right? And on the left-hand side, we have three components right, that uh, we focus on, and that's the promise. What, what, are, what are we promising in benefits uh, uh, that will be delivered to the partner. The second element is the differentiating itself. We work very hard on that. Sometimes it's difficult um, um, to precisely uh, create a differentiation statement. All right, and then we're looking for proof, and the best proof is third parties, other partners you've worked with, uh, other success stories that uh, uh, that you can tell. And that's to a targeted partner. So if you're using stocking distributors, uh, uh, they would be a one value proposition if you have value-added resellers or systems integrators in your uh, in your model uh, you might want to alter the value proposition to reflect uh, for reflect that on the right side of Sony's model uh, is the price cost we want to be transparent uh, with the information that we give the partner uh, they will be looking to see what it's going to cost them in time in effort uh, and effort itself is a separate box in his model where we go down and articulate what our expectations are of the partners when they when they finally join us. And the final one is one that most companies don't think about at all. And that is the risk that may be involved in doing business with you. Now, every partner I know uh, uh, has suppliers where out-of-stocks occur, uh, different difficulties in the relationship crop up, uh, well, we get uh, conflict with uh, other partners and so forth. And what they really want to know on the risk element is uh, uh, that the company has a good track record in mitigating uh, those risks. Now, obviously, what we're trying to do all right, is make sure that the left-hand side of our equation uh, outweighs the right-hand side of the equation right, and that we communicate very effectively our model. Now, the rest of the steps in our process are there right to uh, uh, support this uh, uh, structure? And uh, okay, uh, Doris, since you're controlling the here, I think it's not you're having a little problem. Yeah, huh? the advance again. I'm sorry. Well, go to webinar. Server could be involved here as well. So I'm just I'm just going to continue, guys, and we'll we'll catch up <laughs> with you on the on the rebound. I think she'll be able to to get that. You might take it down and then put it back up, uh, Doris, to see if uh, uh, we can get the slide function to work better. Give you half a second here. Yeah, I, I, the screen is absolutely frozen. I'm sorry. All right, we'll take it down and put it back up. I'll only take a half a second to do that. I, I'm not able to take it down either. Okay. That's always an interesting problem. So, <clears throat> can you reboot? 
not without ending the webinar. I could give the keyboard and mouse to you. You can try that. Let's uh, let's see if that works. Or it could be the whole your whole screen is frozen. So hang in with us a second, folks. We'll try to be respectful of your time and get through all this. There we go. Okay. So there's the okay, teeter-totter you, you were talking about. That's the teeter-totter. All right, let's move past that one, get to that. Okay, now we'll go on to the next step. Thanks for your patience, folks. Okay, so we have a tool here for you, <clears throat> Channel Value Proposition Worksheet. Now, what this actually is, it creates it's what I call a wireframe. Right? It doesn't actually write the value proposition for you. It helps you construct it. So you'll be able to download this and use it to build the elements, which then you'll want to turn over to your marketing department or to your copywriters to, <clears throat> to get your text in place. All right. Uh, it covers all the elements. And uh, in future webinars, we're actually going to have uh, probably a webinar on most of the components of this particular model. Uh, we'll actually be going over uh, value propositions that we think were, are good and the value propositions we think uh, need, some, uh, need some work. <clears throat> but this will be available for you post-seminar. All right, the next step in our process right, is really to uh, begin to define what the ideal partner would look like. Now, I know these are, these, you know, each one of these elements does take some work, but believe me, they're very, very worthwhile. Uh, when we do this professionally, we can't afford uh, to fail. Uh, we try to be, find successful partners uh, for our clients, right? And this step is, uh, is clearly one of the key elements, right? So Doris is going to walk you through the elements of the ideal partner profile. Thanks very much, Mike. So you've now talked about uh, you have your building box in place and a great value, a partner value proposition. Now it's time to envision what your ideal partners look like. And the place to start is to identify the key attributes that are most important to you. A good way to start is with a brainstorming session, a long list of wants and wishes that you'd like to have your partners to have, and then you'll want to winnow it down to the most essential criteria. Once you've identified the most important attributes of your ideal partner, you want to weight those criteria because not all are going to be equally important to you. And the weights that you assign to do this systematically should be defined and quantified as much as possible. This process will allow you to systematically compare partners. It's often not as easy as it sounds because there are lots of different dimensions that could be included. And these will differ depending on your vertical, the geographies and the markets, your products or services, and even between two companies competing for the same partners and end customers. Just as one example, your company may have specific technical specifications you absolutely want your distributors and channel partners to have so that they can install and repair and upgrade products adequately. But other companies might do this directly or via an independent third party. It's useful after you've scored each partner 
to test this system, use your best partners to validate your model. Obviously, your best partners that you have, assuming you have some great partners, should score very highly. And if they don't, you'll need to go back and retweak some of your assumptions. You can use this process not only to identify potential new distributors, high potential ones, but to even score your existing channel partners. And don't be surprised if this process uh, of evaluating legacy partners identifies some really bad fits, but this process will help you identify why that is. Mike mentioned tools. Here's another one that we have. This is a simple Excel uh, scorecard. The formulas are very transparent, so if you're a little adept with Excel, you can change these criteria. We have on one of the pages uh, a whole list of typical criteria that people often look for. Uh, it's not the be-all and end-all, it's merely to give you some ideas. Uh, in this tool, we've populated this with some sample criteria. Uh, so don't, this is not an off-the-shelf ready-to-use tool. Um, we've just arbitrarily picked three for each of these categories that, that we recommend. Um, and you'll want to look at these and decide which, which criteria are the most important for you. Um, if you. Like I said, if you're a little adept with Excel, you'll be able to uh, not just limit yourself to three categories. You might want two in one category and six in another. It's also possible to weight the categories themselves. Um, so for some of you, sales and marketing or a cultural fit might be uh, it might need to be weighted. And you can see that uh, we've put in and we've just plugged in some sample numbers uh, just to show you how the tool works. We've used one through five to weight them. But again, you can uh, change the formula to be one through ten or whatever makes sense. Uh, the beauty of the tool is that it generates some really nice graphics. Uh, this is a little hard to read, but it's just to give you a flavor of what the tool, which is free for downloading um, from our website or by emailing us. And you can see that it allows you visually to do some nice comparisons and maybe even include in uh, presentations to management. So uh, you've now got your ideal partner profile. And the next step in the process is to define a great partner recruitment pa package. Some of you might ask, why would you bother to do this? And uh, the reason is really threefold. First, because potential partners immediately will compare you with other suppliers. You'll never get another chance to make a first impression and a highly, uh, a highly polished and well thought out recruitment package will signal to them immediately you're professional and thorough and you've thought about the entire partner engagement process from this from their point of view. The recruitment package and here's another tool, a sample outline, um, it shows how you're going to work with the partners and support them to produce a successful business. The second reason for doing this is that it signals to them you're willing to invest in them. Remember in the first step with the building blocks as well as in the value proposition section that Mike covered, 
there's a sacrifice or cost to potential partners. They'll have to divert resources to support your products and offerings, and they'll want to know that you will be there to support them in that effort. Finally, the third reason is that assembling this recruitment package generally helps the supplier's organization too. It helps you prepare all the various functions, educate them on how they'll be expected to support the partners. The process of doing this, we've found, often identifies lots of gaps, role fuzziness, sometimes competing priorities within your organization. So, now that you've got all those steps in place, the next step is to identify good partner prospects. Mike, I'm going to turn it back to you. Great, thank you. Um, we, we're big believers in standardization, so we try to make sure that the, when we execute that we're uh, using um, processes that can be repeated over and over again. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, we established with our, our customers, the ones that are uh, large global, uh, that it's done the same way literally in every market that they serve. So I put an analogy together here of deep sea fishing. You want to cast as wide a uh, net as you possibly can. Right? Uh, go through the public data that's available on the, uh, the, the web, check out their websites, see who their other suppliers are, see what kinds of uh, complementary and parallel products that they, uh, uh, they sell. And then from that, we'll move it into the fish farm, all right, where you start doing your internal profiling, uh, start to drill down deep on them and find out uh, a little bit more about them. The ones that look the best to you then, we stick them to the fish tank, all right, and we start applying the criteria of which you now have a tool and start the uh, recruiting process with telephone calls and face-to-face -face visits. Finally, we're going to bring it down to the last couple or three look at them in the fishbowl and make our final selection. So just, just a simple way of saying we try to you know, go as wide as we can all right, and bring it down to a, a very narrow, highly focused uh, uh, target. Now, for those of you who have the budgets, uh, you could go out there and buy lists or you can use uh, uh, embassies if you're doing international recruiting. Um, oftentimes, the commercial attache uh, at uh, many government uh, uh, embassies will uh, have someone that will help you with uh, their local lists and actually make the introductions for you. Um, unfortunately, in my uh, channel management career, um, I had to do it all by myself, so I had to develop my own list. But the object was always to come down with a short list uh, that was uh, highly vetted, uh, where we felt the best potential was, uh, was going to be. All right, so the next step in the process all right, it's obviously just selecting the best prospects and making sure that uh, our discussions uh, go, go well with them. So uh, let's get to that. You've got the scorecard here all right, to, uh, to, to work from. Um, there's, there's one thing I want to point out, and that is it's, it's virtually impossible during a recruiting process uh, uh, to be totally objective. You're, you're going to find partners that you simply click with and uh, just on a personal basis you like very much. Uh, that is going to enter into your decision-making process, but the object of using the tools is to try to put as much objectivity into it as you possibly can. So from there, uh, are, are you still uh, doing well? There we go. Thank you. All right. We get into the selection process. Now, th this is really an important aspect of this, and so because there are some legal aspects to it, uh, Doris is a practicing lawyer. So I'm going to let her go through the due diligence process with you. Thanks, Mike. 
One last thing about the scorecard is that you'll want to memorialize the scores in your CRM, your customer relationship management, or your partner relationship management system, or whatever other tools you're using, because these will be helpful data points as you review and mature your programs, uh, which, which you'll want to tweak over time and, and improve. As Mike mentioned, once you have your high potential prospects, the key is to verify the information that these partners have provided to you and ask for more detailed information. This overall process is called due diligence and generally breaks down into informal due diligence. And we've listed some of the, the ways that informal due diligence can go on, as well as formal due diligence. And we'll talk just briefly about both. Um, I will say most companies we find just don't spend enough time on this. And even when they do, it's seldom standardized or documented. Um, keep in mind, uh, a lot of companies are like, why, well, why should I spend all this time and money doing this? And it goes back again to the first slide about the ROI. You will invest an enormous amount of time and energy and resources in a partner. Uh, and you really want to make sure that you're you're doing giving yourself the best chance to find the absolute best partners and make sure they're good fits before you invest all that time. Um, you know, Mike was telling me, for example, that uh, a colleague of his who does background searches was was saying that in the U.S., 30 to 40 percent is a staggering number of prospects and or their owners or their senior management team have problems in their records. They have arrests, lawsuits, uh, bankruptcies, even criminal convictions. And if you're in other verticals, for example, healthcare, you want to check things like debarment. You don't want to just ask your partner. You want to verify. And that is doubly, even triply true in foreign markets where you often have no real idea who you're dealing with. You don't know if the company is real, how long it's been in business, or what its local reputation is. So you'll want to take time to interview. Interview other suppliers in the partner's portfolio. Interview their customers. Go visit the customers. Contact trade associations. Um, and in some cases, depending on the situation and what's at stake, you might even consider a private investigator or people posing as dummy customers. Formal due diligence is a questionnaire for the distributor. And uh, here's an outline of uh, a typical due diligence process. I look at business and cultural as, frankly, the qualifying uh, pieces of the due diligence outline, and corporate and financial are the things that will disconnect or dis disqualify potential distributors uh, where there are red flags. Yet another tool we've got is a due diligence questionnaire that you can take and customize. And I'll say you really should customize this. Uh, it is impossible to come up with a questionnaire, a single questionnaire that fits every industry, every situation. The tool we provided is uh, probably a lot longer than you will need, so you'll want to take it and customize it to emphasize those aspects of your partner and your business that are uh, that are the most important. But uh, it should give you a leg up, and this is something that you'll send to your distributor. And um, 
and want them to fill out and obviously their responsiveness and transparency and how they fill it out is an important uh, criteria that you'll want to think about. Um, we also recommend that companies really standardize this process. It shouldn't be hit and miss, ad hoc, uh, you know, going with your gut. Uh, and here's yet another tool. This was done in Visio. It's, uh, you know, it sets out the selection process, but frankly, you can use tools like this to standardize your entire channel management process um, that helps everybody in your organization stay aligned, uh, make sure there are no gaps, and everyone understands the timing of how quickly they need to respond, and who needs to be signing off on various pieces of the process. So with that, I'm going to move to the next step, which is agreeing on a business plan. And Mike, I know this is your very favorite topic, so take it away. I'm having trouble with this platform today. Yeah. Yeah, your voice went off there for a little bit, uh, Doris. So I've got a feeling the platform's are Uh Doris probably indicated in here that the, the business plan is the next step in the uh, element. This is my favorite subject, actually. Um, years ago, some, sometime late in the 90s, uh, I've been doing this for 40 years, so we've obviously had a, a migration of the way we go about things. Uh, the partner business plan was something that we did really after uh, we signed the contract and we're actually ramping up the, uh, the onboarding process. Now then in the 90s, I, I changed the methodology because it seemed to make some uh, sense uh, that to sit down with the partner and negotiate at least a good portion of the elements in the business plan was another way to get an insight into how this partner was going to go to marketplace. Now there's some passive information in there, which is basically uh, for uh, the channel management team. That is the partner info. Uh, when you're successful enough and are promoted to vice president and uh, uh, someone takes over the partner management, uh, this information on each partner helps the new channel manager uh, understand what the partner's role is, how long they've been around, uh, uh, under what context they were recruited and so forth. Then obviously we have the contacts, uh, uh, people that will be interfacing with the partner from the supplier side, the partner contacts, so uh, we know who's responsible for what element of execution. Uh, then there's a section on the industries that they're going to be uh, working on, the segments, right, and the installed base customers. This helps us decide you know, how we're going to go to marketplace, which customers we're going to begin calling on uh, first. Uh, it also sets out sales targets, of course, uh, what we think we can sell in any given period. Right? Most important part of it, however, is the agreed upon actions, the marketing and sales actions, the trade shows you're going to go to, all the things we're both going to obligate ourselves to, to make this a successful uh, relationship. All right? Now, this actually gives you something to manage. <clears throat> so, before we go on to signing the uh, contract, uh, we've already agreed what I'm, uh, what the, the supplier is going to be responsible for, and what the partner is going to be responsible for, right? And especially during those critical first few months, we're going to be able to see how well the partner actually fulfills their obligations. So it's a super useful tool. As a matter of fact, uh, in the the professional development uh, seminars that I do, I have the seven rules of uh, uh, successful uh, partnerships. And the second rule is that the business plan is not optional. 
all right, even if we do it very light. So in the downloads that you'll be able to get after the webinar, uh, we have two models for you. We have a business plan light, which we suggest you start with. Uh, there's a lot of things going on during uh, the, uh, the onboarding process with partners. They're uh, trying to learn your product knowledge. They're trying to put in new processes, get used to your order entry system, uh, all kinds of things that are, are taking up their time. All right? Now, we recommend that the business plan be updated with the new partners, tier one partners, uh, once a quarter. All right? In that first update, we can add more data, more depth to the partner plan, and we can do that each quarter. So by the end of the first year, we have a relatively sophisticated, comprehensive plan that has not been a great burden on either you or the partner. And finally, we call out in the plan what the reviews will be, that is performance reviews. Uh, this is not a punitive process, by the way. Uh, what we're looking for here is uh, what's working uh, for us, what's not working for us, do we have to change strategy, uh, is competition doing something we need to take into account. Now your tier two partners will try to do about twice a year. Uh, your smallest partners, uh, of course, will be more ad hoc, uh, but we recommend at least uh, once a year with them. Um, the reviews generally are only a few hours uh, each, so we could go through uh, all the things we'd like to change and where we'd like to prove. It's also part of ongoing motivation uh, that we want to do. And that was one of the things that a lot of you said in uh, our preliminary run up to this webinar that was a, a key, right, is keeping your partners motivated. Uh, that isn't a thing that we do. It's something that's ongoing, and we're going to devote an entire uh, webinar to it uh, in the future. So now all we got to do is sign up to new partner. Um, sounds simple. But this is where the contract comes into play, and because that is a legal document, I'm going to have Doris walk you through it. Thanks, Mike. So we only have a, a very short time in this webinar to touch on the contract negotiation process. But as a lawyer who's negotiated literally hundreds of channel partner agreements, I urge you to put your agreements in writing. There's nothing worse than coming to the uh, sad end of a relationship and ending up with a dispute, uh, but nothing to back it up. And finally, to re really view the contract not as a, a terrible rite of passage, that you a painful one that you have to go through with your lawyer, but frankly as an opportunity, the last chance you have to sit down with your potential partner and make sure that you're really on the same page. Uh, a very, very long, protracted, difficult contract negotiation often signals uh, and pr is, is a precursor, frankly, to issues that you'll see later on in the relationship. Um, and similarly, frankly, if the partner doesn't even comment at all on the contract, that's also a, a flag that says that they really haven't uh, read it and aren't really taking it seriously. The contract also should be your operating blueprint. It's not just legal pixie dust with a bunch of legal terms that you sprinkle over. Uh, it really should be an operating blueprint where you memorialize how you're going to work with this partner because the most uh, the most significant disputes are always about operational issues. They're not about uh, most of the, the, the legal boilerplate that's in a contract. And finally, track your key dates. 
all too often companies forget that there are key dates in a contract and they miss them. Uh, so find a way to memorialize and track those key dates. All right, so now we're on to step nine. We're almost through the process. Mike, I'm going to turn it back to you to talk about onboarding your new partners. Okay, fine. Um, obviously, we've gone through a lot of work so far. Um, you've uh, set up expectations uh, when we're doing the business plan and then during the contract uh, discussions. Uh, and we, know, we want to solve onboarding. It is part of the ongoing uh, motivational component of dealing with your uh, uh, partner. Uh, we've created a four-pillar area. Uh, Doris is going to put all of those up for you. All right. They're going to be busy with the IP transfer, that is your product knowledge. Uh, people will have to be trained both internally at the supplier, uh, if you haven't done that, and at the uh, partner's locations to get familiar with how you work. Obviously, there are new processes that they're going to have to get used to. All right. So we can walk them through those, uh, those elements. And do remember that we have set up these expectations of performance. You have a right to expect uh, uh, performance from the partner given the investment and time and effort that you put into it. All right, so we want to reinforce those expectations and also uh, make sure that we keep up on our own obligations. So, you know, the, the, the pillars are, uh, we have an ebook on on that and what a good uh, onboarding process looks like. Finally, into the last step, step number 10, is to make sure that you have a good evaluation process in place. Uh, again, just like the business plan, uh, the evaluation uh, happens as a matter of course in agreement with the partner, and things do change. The market changes, uh, co competition changes, the partner can change their business model. Oftentimes, uh, um, you know, they'll get uh, absorbed over the new, newest new shiny thing that's come along in terms of new products or technologies, uh, and they de-emphasize uh, your product while they're uh, ramping up their, uh, their, their new suppliers. Okay, so failures reassess on a regular basis uh, may mean that gradually that partner drifts into an uh, environment where they're no longer fit for purpose for you, and so we're either into a termination or we've got to figure out how to rehabilitate them. All right, so good onboarding and constant communication with the uh, the partner. Uh, if it's not done properly, it's one of the key reasons for subpar results. So there we've gone through, you know, what looks like a substantial amount of work, and I can guarantee you if you're looking for a quick fix, this isn't it. Uh, it is our process uh, that we use professionally, and it does provide superior results. So with that, uh, we're almost to the end of the seminar. Doris, do you have anything to say to these good people? Yeah, so I will just stress again that the Globalocity team uh, has worked with literally hundreds of companies over the years. And that includes small companies, mid-sized companies, and large companies with very complex programs. But all of the steps in this process are critical no matter where you are in your channel management program evolution. And each of these steps can be right-sized for where you are. So start small. Don't be overwhelmed. Make sure you take it one step at a time and your process will gradually improve and you will consistently find better partners and you'll experience not only better top and bottom line results, but sustainably better results. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Steve, our moderator. 
uh, Mike and Doris, thanks so much for a very enlightening presentation. As we have several questions in the queue, let me read the first one to you. I get that we're better off if we recruit our best partners, but distributors still approach us all the time. How should we handle that situation? Mike, I'll, I'll let you that address that. Yep. Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's always an issue. Uh, as a matter of fact, the better your program uh, is, uh, you, you're going to find that uh, you get a reputation in the marketplace and people will seek you out. Uh, the 10 steps still apply. All right, we're, we're going to go through the entire process with them. That's part of the standardization uh, that we, uh, we go through. Now, um, the criteria will tell you immediately whether it's worth pursuing or not pursuing. Uh, obviously, the territory filled, uh, you, you, you may not want to simply uh, turn them off. You may want to put them on a back burner in, in case at some point uh, uh, you feel that you do need to expand. Right? But all of the steps there still are uh, in, in play. Um, for those of you that have more open uh, programs, uh, where the number and sorts of software companies, where the number of partners uh, you know can be really quite high, I think Microsoft has something like twenty thousand, or maybe even more than that, uh, within their, their three-tier structure. Um, it, it's useful to at least explore to see if they they might be. Uh, uh, a future opportunity for you. Great, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Now, our next question is, you talk about partnering skills. How do we know if we have those or if we need to improve them? I'll take that one, Mike. Okay. So partnering skills are, uh, are, are I, I think about this in terms of the uh, the glacier analogy, uh, there are skill sets that are above the water, things like financial analysis, things like planning, project management, sales skills. Partnering skills are often the under the water uh, part of the skill sets that organizations need to have to effectively manage their partners. Many companies don't even realize whether or not they are effective at partnering or what their partnering style is. And we actually have some assessment tools that we use with clients to assess their, their partnering style. Uh, there's not necessarily a right or a wrong way. The most important thing is to be aware of your partnering style and um, the elements that, that go into it so that you can be more aware of it and frankly, be more effective at communicating those unwritten expectations to potential partners and get better at assessing what the partners, uh, how, how good a match they are with how your partner has, what, how their, your, your partner approaches partnering skills. I might make a little addition to that, Doris. Uh, I, I came out of direct sales when I finally became a channel manager. Uh, and the skill sets I use there, I, no, frankly, I'm, you know, you're totally in control yourself. Uh, the skill sets uh, that you, you find you're using when you become a channel manager are really quite different. As a matter of fact, it's a tough job because you know, you're trying to manage independent third parties and they have their own business model, they have their own business objectives and so forth. So the tools that uh, Doris was talking about, please do check out the website. Uh, we do have information uh, for you there on 
what that is. And later on, of course, as I've indicated, we'll be doing uh, specialized webinars just on this subject. So Steve, we have any more questions? Yes, we do. We have quite a few in the queue. Our next question is for Doris. In your experience, are your supplier and partner contracts always in both languages? Uh, I assume we're talking about foreign um, agreements, and the answer is no. Uh, there are some countries where the agreement actually needs to be in the local language in order for it to be enforceable. Mexico is certainly one of them, uh, and in that case it not only needs to be in the local language, but, uh, but needs to um, be officially translated. So it needs to have an official translation. Um, but I, I find that in the most uh, jurisdictions, English is still the language of business in most places. And as long as you specify in your agreement that the uh, that both parties agree that English is the controlling language, and that you've thought about um, where and how disputes will be resolved, uh, th that generally isn't a problem. One of the things you do need to think about, though, is making sure your foreign partner really has the English skills to understand some of the nuances. So you will find that sometimes you need to take extra time to really sit down and work through with a potential partner um, very in very clear detail what the expectations are um, just because they, they may be proficient in English uh, at a conversational level but may not understand the, the terms of the agreement as clearly as you might want them to. Back to you, Steve. Great, thank you. Our next question is, as part of the vetting process, have you found that potential partners are willing to show their financial statements? Yeah, I can, I can comment on that. Uh, most of them are. Most of them are experienced. They've been through uh, this, uh, this vetting process before. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's funny sometimes because I, I, I warn my, my clients in the uh, attendees to my uh, my seminars uh, that the, uh, a sharp partner actually probably has two financials. Uh, they have the, the real one and the one they show to you. Uh, so depending on what the vetting process is that you've, uh, you've got, uh, sometimes you even have to ask them for uh, a certified uh, tool so you make sure that the financials are, uh, uh, are legitimate. All right. Uh, Failure, all right, to disclose that would suggest that they got something to, to hide. Uh, they've been through this before. Every company that does business with them is going to ask them for uh, financials, and then of course uh, the partner has the perfect right to ask for yours as uh, as well. Uh, so I, I consider that a red flag, uh, or or someone who's simply naive, and you know that would uh, be uh, another red flag that suggests that maybe um, there's something in their background that they don't want us to know. Yeah, I, I'll echo that and and say that maybe 10 years ago there would have been a reluctance, particularly in some foreign markets, to share financial statements and other information. But I think um, all of the, the focus on anti-corruption in the foreign markets uh, has led most companies to, to have some sort of formalized due diligence process and 
um, asking for this and all sorts of other information. And if you're coming across a new partner who hasn't had this experience before, uh, you'll be doing them a service to help them understand that this is the new reality, frankly, for most global companies or even those with aspirations of being global to be more transparent, not less. Very good. Our next question, in trying to find a partner, do you, re do you recommend using global trade directories? Are there one or two that you can recommend? Uh, Mike, do you want me to take that or do you want to yeah, take well, it? Yeah, well, it, it, we can both comment on it. Uh, look, I use every tool in the book. <laughs> uh, the, my first go-to, however, is uh, uh, the deep sea fishing, which is you know going on online. Uh, one because we, we want to make sure that they've got a reasonably robust presence, right? But sure, I use directories. We use, as I mentioned, the uh, sometimes the uh, cultural. I mean the uh, the commercial attaches of embassies, we use uh, uh, associations, all right. Uh, Doris, uh, what, what are your favorite tools? What, which ones do you like? Well, I think that depends on the market and the vertical and the geography. Um, but, you know, um, talking to people, to companies in adjacent spaces to yours, so maybe some of your key suppliers in your uh, business um, ask them who their partners are. Ask them what they've heard in the marketplace. That can often be a really, uh, a really good source of information, as well as talking to customers. Boy, there's nothing like getting end customer feedback to tell you who who really knows what they're doing in the marketplace. As a matter of fact, that was one of our. <laughs> I didn't tell you, I got my gray hair for real. In the 1980s, you know, we were using yellow pages, and Doris said, uh, talking to customers, uh, absolutely, all right. Uh, uh, also, other suppliers uh, sometimes will uh, will share information uh, uh, with you. Sometimes they're a little reluctant because they don't want the competition. Um, but uh, yeah, the end user feedback is is phenomenal if you have the time and resources to do it. Thank you. Our next question is, we're under a lot of pressure to increase sales. How do we justify stepping back and spending all this time to build a recruitment program? Mike, I'll let you <laughs> take I, this one. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah, we're, we're always, uh, the pressure to increase sales never goes away, right? Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure your quotas ever went down year over year. Uh, yeah. Uh, you, you step back and put a formal process in place because overall, once you have a standardized model, it actually reduces the time in, in recruiting. You move through it more quickly, you get used to it, all right, and it becomes easier the more times that you, you go through the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the process. Uh, I told you in the beginning that yes, there is an investment of time in designing uh, the recruitment program, uh, getting all the pieces in, in place, uh, but I assure you, uh, that the value of being able to sort through in a, a really well-designed manner the options that you have. Now, I do also understand that sometimes, depending on the kind of recruiting you're doing, you may only be looking for a replacement partner, partner for a termination. Uh, so it's, it's not so difficult in that case. It's, it's really where you're putting on expansion programs where you're a U.S. company trying to go into Europe or China or you know, the Far East. 
or if you're a, a, an international organization trying to move into the U.S. Uh, the understanding of the marketplaces is uh, uh, not, not as good if this is a, a market expansion. Uh, so there again, the, um, the tools that you develop, the processes that you develop actually become time savings. Uh, I do have clients where I know one of the reasons uh, that they were under pressure for sales was the fact that they didn't have a substantial recruiting program. Uh, it was pretty ad hoc, usually at a trade show uh, over a couple of years. So, you know, we, we, we do know after all the times that we've done this, right, that uh, the time invested in building this structure is well worth it because you are going to get better partners. You know, I want to just add one thing to this, too, is that in our experience, most companies never calculate the incredible cost that builds up in terms of the supporting the bad partners. So if you were to start tracking, for example, all of the time you spent, all of the phone calls, the trips, the mailing of samples, the back and forth, the reviews, um, there is a tremendous, tremendous cost. And it wouldn't be so bad if it were only one or two partners that were a drag on your system. But if you multiply that times the number of bad partners that are underperforming, the, the cost to your organization is, is astronomical. Um, so that's why we're just huge advocates of spending the time up front and um, educating your management team, uh, if need be, that this is really an investment that's worth making. Thank you. Our next question, I'm trying to expand my construction equipment into Nepal, but what do we do if there just aren't many partners in a given market to work with? <laughs> Yeah, interesting market that you picked out in Nepal. Uh, yeah, or, or any emerging marketplace for that uh, that matter. Um, there are a number of different kinds of techniques. I'll cover just a few of them. And uh, if you'd like to go in, in, into it in more depth, uh, just just write me an email and we strike up a dialogue. Um, first of all. We have had places uh, where we're trying to find uh, partners where there just wasn't an acceptable partner available. What partners there were may have been tied up in you know, legal agreements with other suppliers, uh, or when we took a look at them, we just didn't think they had the strengths that, uh, that we needed. One technique is to take a look at parallel and complementary uh, uh, product areas. That is, they're not specifically designed uh, for your product, but they call on the same decision maker, right? At least they have access to marketplace that you're trying to uh, trying to get to, right? And strike up a, a discussion with those people. While they're they're not maybe the best technical choice, uh, we at least get to evaluate their ability. You know, would they be able to understand our IP? Uh, can we train them up on the, the skill sets necessary to do that? Since they're calling on the same customers. Well, since you mentioned Nepal, another technique would be to take uh, a partner that you have in China all right, and discuss with them the opening of a branch uh, in Nepal. Uh, sometimes it's only a single person uh, that's in, involved in the startup of uh, those things to see if uh, uh, you know, they'd be willing to look at that as a, as a possible tool. All right? The other thing is to change the partner type. 
we may have been looking for a distributor that was uh, stocking uh, a, a, you know, with an inventory. Uh, you might go to a manufacturer's representative and find people with the technical knowledge that might be interested in uh, either starting up their own uh, own business. I, I recently did one in the Middle East uh, where literally there was a um, uh, a guy at the partners who wanted wanted to physically move, all right, and that was looking to separate himself from the the partners' business. Instead, we made him an offer, all right, to open up a branch uh, in another region of the country uh, where the, this partner had very little coverage. So there are a number of things that you can explore, uh, but I do understand the difficulty in some marketplaces where and even some vertical marketplaces where uh, the ecosystem for partners just doesn't produce a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity. Anything to add to that, Doris? No. Well, there is one other technique uh, that we'll soon have a white paper on, which is something we call the uh, distributor plus model, which is actually parking a resource uh, either semi-permanently or temporarily with a partner um, that could be a consultant, could be somebody that uh, you send um, uh, on a temporary basis to go help the, that partner, really help them get up to speed faster. So uh, we're working on a white paper on that very topic. We have several more questions in the queue, a couple of dozen, and we have time for one more question before we have to end the webinar. What is a normal lead time for a partner to become successful? Wow, that's a that's a great question, and it really depends on the complexity of your uh, um, your product and your industry. Um, I mean, we, we've we've got people out there like uh, and we work with ABB in the past, and uh, uh, they're product prolific. They have lots and lots of different products, so. Uh, getting up to speed on uh, their product portfolio does take uh, quite a long time. Uh, we've, we've got uh, complex products. Uh, another one of our clients, Raintree Systems, is uh, software for the uh, medical industry. Uh, the software is so robust that literally it takes a, a new partner nine months uh, to learn the product well enough to get a certification and start operating independently on their own. So in general, I can say if you have a relatively uh, simple product structure, uh, you should be able to uh, onboard them you know, within a 90, 120-day period of time. Uh, my average time for getting uh, a partner up to speed and having them be able to operate more independently, which, it, which is a target for us these days. Uh, you know, to, today, our model really focuses on pushing the costs of doing business more to the partner the partners seem to like it and working independently. Uh, you get more margin because you're not spending as, uh, as, mu as much money. Uh, but it would probably be around a, a six-month period of time uh, before they can build their pipeline and really start converting um, a business on an ongoing basis. Uh, we do emphasize, uh, for instance, with, uh, with Raintree, especially the more complex models, that your support for them during those first few months has got to be uh, really fairly substantial. You're transferring not only the product, but uh, uh, you're the experts really on how to sell your own product, and it takes time for them to uh, to work that into their uh, uh, their uh, methodology. Uh, so you, anything else on it? Yeah, just you one one last comment here. Um, 
I, I know every, there are questions we didn't get to, but we will get to all of your questions. We'll plan to put together all of the questions and responses to them to send out to all the webinar attendees. Uh, so Steve, do you want to close things out? Thank you very much, Doris. As part of Globalocity's webinar series, we'll be profiling another important aspect of improving and developing your sales channel process that we believe will add value to your international sales and global sales channel needs. You'll be hearing from us again shortly about our next webinar titled Onboarding Channel Partners for Better Engagement, which will be on April 26. Please also feel free to take a look at our website for details regarding our services at globalocityservices.com. Finally, you'll be receiving a thank you note from us that will contain all of the contact information of our presenters, Mike Hunter and Doris Nagel, for your reference. By all means, please feel free to contact them regarding any questions or comments you may have, or if you're interested in receiving copies of any of the tools discussed in the presentation today. In addition, you'll be receiving our ebook titled Recruitment, Find Your Best Channel Partners Every Time. So Mike, Doris, thank you so much for a very informative and enlightening presentation. And thanks again to everyone for joining us. We'll now be ending the session. Thanks again. Bye-bye now.